That's your cue to sit down. So there you go. You're almost there. I said that for Betty because she was standing up. I did that on purpose. So that's, if you don't know, we're in the midst of our series. And with any series, we always have, we come up with some kind of catchy theme to, to break out of the welcome time or just to, to lead into the series. And in this one, we're talking about um, the Superman theme because we're focusing on the life of Jesus, who for Christians, he is the ultimate superhero. He is everything, right? He's, he's what our entire faith hinges on. And really, when we look in the book of Luke, we've talked about this, but the Luke, book of Luke is all about seek and to save. Seek and to save. God says, I've come. Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. And he, in the book of Luke, asked Luke to write, Jesus is the son of man. And if we, if you remember from weeks past, that term son of man, kind of like, you know, Superman's name means son of Kalel, which is, you know, if you know the history of Superman, it's like he's a little god. Anyway, so the son of man and that term, we've talked about it in weeks past, is a loaded term. It's an Old Testament term that refers to the coming Messiah, the coming king that would save God's people and save humanity from itself and would change everything. And so Luke is writing his gospel. There are four gospels. Each one tells the same story, but tells it different ways and highlights different parts. It'd be like if you read four biographies of someone's life, right? Those four biographies would say similar things, but they would be from different perspectives. It would still be the same person. It would be true. But if you were to read several biographies, you'd get a better picture of who this person is. That's why we have four gospels. This gospel is trying to get us to see that Jesus was the promised son of man from the Old Testament, who he was promised to be, and what the future is for those of us who are men and women, mankind. And Jesus says, I want you to know that I've come to seek and to save the lost. That's what he said in 1910, which we looked at last week. That he said, that's the purpose. Now, the problem is that many of us don't see that we need saving. We don't really think we're that lost, right? And it's kind of scary to think of someone seeking us because it's like being stalked, right? And so, so, so it's this idea of the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. The lost. And that's what we've been looking at. This week we're going to look at a question, and each week we've taken a question from the passages that we've been going through. One of the questions that Jesus asks or is asked in the passage becomes our title for the sermon. This week it's, what do you want me to do for you? This is a huge question, isn't it? Think of any relationship you've ever been in when this question's dropped. <laughs> what do you want me to do for you? That's a loaded question. Depends on what your attitude was when you were asking it. Depends what this conversation was right before the question's asked, right? What do you want me to do? Or, hey, what would you like for me to do? Like, it's a loaded question. And with Jesus, this is the ultimate question. Jesus has come to tell the world its purpose, to show his purpose, to show who he is. And he's asking this question all along. And people have all these expectations on what do you want me to do for you? Like, God hasn't done enough. And yet Jesus, still in his mercy, does more. He heals people. Listen, God didn't have to do any more to prove himself when he came to this earth. He, need, he didn't even need to come to this earth as a man. He didn't have to. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. He chose to, to show us that he desperately wants us to see that he wants to do what we could never do for ourselves, which is save us. 
Because the Bible says that we can't be saved by our own effort, by our own work. You can't be good enough. And just when you think you're good enough, you do something wrong and you're no longer good enough. And that's every day, all day long. You can't balance the scales with God. It's too much. And a just God has to carry out justice for the things that we've done. So I ask you the question. Why are you here this morning? What is it that you thought when you got up? Did you ask this question? Did you think about, God, what, what can I do for you today? Maybe you asked the question, I'm going to church because I want to see what God can do for me. Is, is there a God? Can, can he do something for me in the circumstances that I'm in? Because that's really the ultimate question. Does God care and is he willing to do anything about it? And really that's the number one argument atheists have. Right? They say, if there was a loving God, how could he allow so much evil and pain and suffering and awfulness in the world? It's a number one argument. It's a, it's a crazy argument if you think about it, because even if you don't believe in God, it doesn't solve pain and suffering and evil. As a matter of fact, it makes the world just kind of hopeless and cruel, because it's just pain and suffering and evil, and there's no point. You just live and die, and good luck. Where Jesus and God gives us the explanation for evil, that the reason he hasn't come back, the reason he hasn't decided to destroy is because he's still trying to seek and save souls. And he hasn't come back yet because once he finally comes back, it's over for humanity. And so he keeps extending grace. He keeps extending opportunity for mankind to know him out of love. So the reason that evil exists is because there is a loving God saying, I can't come back to be the ultimate judge. I'm, I'm trying to have more time. It's kind of like, why do we let criminals exist? Why don't we just shoot them? You're speeding down the road, doing 70 miles an hour, cop pulls you over, blows you up, yeah, boom, done. Okay, give the car away, now somebody else gets a try. You failed. That's justice. You broke the law. The reason is because we're merciful. We're going to give you a chance, a second chance. We're going to make you pay a little penalty, maybe get your attention to stop that behavior. Like, that, that's God. And that's what he's trying to do in the person of Christ. So when we jump into this passage and we see Jesus, hopefully you can think about that question. What do you want me to do for you? Either you're asking that to God, maybe he's asking that to you. In Luke 18, 31, you can follow along on your phone if you can get to our live page or you can open your Bibles. It says, then he took the 12 aside and told them, listen. So, so you get the picture. Jesus is grabbing his closest followers. He's looking right at him and he says, hey, listen up. I got something to tell you. This is important. If someone in, in your house, if the boss calls a meeting at your work, right? Stop everything. Everybody get in the kitchen. Everybody get in the boardroom. We got to have a conversation right now. It's like, oh, and everybody comes, right? Like, like what's going to be said? That's exactly what Jesus is doing. There's an exclamation point in the Greek. It is, listen up. We're going up to Jerusalem. Like, yeah, like, it's not shocking. You, you've, you told us that before. We've, we've, we know that you told us we're going to Jerusalem. Remember, Jesus is on his way to finally go to Jerusalem, and this is the last time he'll go there. He's going to die. He's not going to come back to Jerusalem again until he brings the final judgment, the Bible says, in Revelation. And so here you have... Jesus looking and saying, hey, remember, we're going up to Jerusalem. They're traveling up to get to Jerusalem. Everything that is written through the prophets 
about the Son of Man will be accomplished. Jesus is saying, remember, the Son of Man of the Old Testament, everything that's written about him is going to be accomplished. Notice Jesus kind of leaves it out there for them to decide if he's the Son of Man or not. Right? He's like, the Son of Man's going to do this. Well, are you the Son of Man? I mean, I thought you, why are you referring yourself in the third person? Right? It's a title. He's saying the son of man. And if you believe I'm the son of man, then you need to believe that everything has to be accomplished. Now listen up. We talked about this before. At this point in the Jewish history, they are under slavery to Rome. They're pretty much vassals and slaves of the Romans. They have to pay huge taxes. They aren't where they want to be. They can't do what they want to do. And they're looking for someone to deliver them. They're looking for a savior, for a Messiah to come and to deliver them. And they believe that Jesus is going to Jerusalem right now to do that. He is like their President Trump or President Obama, whichever side of the office, uh, the aisle you're on. We're going to follow this guy and he's going to fix all the problems and everything's going to be great. Well, the problem with that is you can't fix problems without getting rid of people. And I don't think we want anybody in political power who just kills people because they can because they don't agree with them. But that's where we're at in our society today is people just wanting to kill each other. And Jesus says, look, it's all got to be accomplished. Why did he say it all has to be accomplished? Well, because they only thought Jesus was, was going to accomplish, listen, what they wanted him to do for them. See, they wanted Jesus to go to Jerusalem, overthrow the Romans, and then they would all get thrones. They would all get positions of authority because they followed this guy and then we're going to be able to tell everybody what to do because we followed you and no one else will. And Jesus is looking at them and he's saying, that's only part of what needs to be accomplished. And actually, that's not what I'm going to get ready to accomplish. Look at what he says. For he will be handed, the Son of Man will be handed over to the Gentiles. Wait, what? No, 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 no. You don't understand. My, the way I've been taught to interpret the Old Testament is that you're going to go into Rome and kill the Gentiles. You're going to overthrow them. You're going to take, you're going to take Caesar out. You're going to take Pilate out. You're going, to take, you're going to kill them all, and we're going to reign. You're not going to be handed over. The Messiah doesn't get handed over. He's a savior, not a, he doesn't get killed. He doesn't get, then he goes on, and he will be mocked, insulted, spit on. And after they flog him, they will kill him, and he will rise on the third day. They understood none of these things. <laughs> this saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. See, here's the problem. When we get in our mind what we want God to do for us, any other message that doesn't fit that, we don't want to hear. That doesn't fit what I think God should be for me. That doesn't fit the God I'm trying to create for myself, and so I, I dismiss that. I don't believe that anymore. I, I have my own truth. It doesn't matter what the scriptures say, that the scriptures said that there was gonna be a man of sorrow that came, that he was going to lay down his life, that he was gonna be the ultimate sacrifice to end the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Forget all that. We just want a king that comes and kicks a can and puts us in charge. That's what we want. We want our side to win. And Jesus is like, there is no side. It's just God. It's just me, my Father, and the Holy Spirit. That's it. And so he looks, and it says they don't understand it. The reason they didn't understand it is the same reason 
we tend to not understand scripture. We come to it and we don't want God to tell us things we don't want to hear. We're already coming looking for something, so we jump all over the Bible till we find the thing we want, and then we proclaim it as, look at what God told me. Versus saying, you know, maybe I should just get to know the biography, the, 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 the God behind this Bible, the whole God. You know, the one in the Old Testament, like the ground opened up and swallowed people. And, and the one in the New Testament that was loving and caring and touched lepers and, and healed sick people. Like, the whole story, not just the one I want at any period, the whole God. That's messy. And he looks and it says they did not grasp it. Now, did they not grasp it because... God was hiding it from them. He didn't want them to know. Look at this. According to 2 Corinthians 4, and this is the Apostle Paul writing, he says, therefore, since we have this ministry, right, we have a ministry to tell people about who the Son of Man, who God is, what his purpose is, that he's going to come again. There's a second coming. We were shown mercy. In other words, God didn't kill us. He didn't come the first time and wipe us out. He came and showed mercy to us when we deserve to be wiped out. We do not give up. In other words, it's going to be hard to do this kind. Of, it's going to be hard to, to do what Jesus did, to live like Jesus lived in truth and in grace. And then he says, instead, we have renounced shameful secrets, not walking in deceit or distorting God's message. Look at that. Paul says, there are people walking around that walk around shamefully and they're distorting the message to fit what they want from God. That's what we do as human beings. And he says, but commending ourselves to every person's conscience in God's sight by an open display of the truth. Look, don't hide stuff. Just get it out there. This is what's true about me. This is what's true about our world. This is what's true about God. And then he says, but if our gospel, that's the good news about Jesus, is veiled, in other words, people don't get it, like the disciples didn't get it, it is veiled to those who are perishing. They're perishing because they don't want the truth. I want what I can get now. I don't want to hear anything else. And he says, look at this, in their case, look who it is that deceives. The God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the good news, of the gospel, the story of the glory of Christ, of the Messiah, who is the image of God. He's the image of Yahweh. The image of the entire Old Testament is in the person of the Messiah and the Son of Man. That's what Paul is saying. He is laying this out so clearly and he's looking and he's saying, look, what do you want him to do for you? Because you better be careful. And if you have the attitude of what can I do for you, what's your motive? Are you wanting to do stuff for God because you think you're going to get in better and you're going to be a little better than that guy and God's going to like you a little bit more? Because if that's your motive, you're wrong. Our motive is we're so grateful we understand what God's done for us that he gave us this incredible book called the Bible that's the most accurately historical document on the face of the planet and we are in awe of him and in awe of the word that he gave us. See, that's the picture. Jesus goes on and he says this. As he drew near Jericho, how many of you remember what Jericho is? Joshua chapter six, you can write that down, look at it later. Now, there were probably two Jerichos, by the way, at this time, okay? Two Jerichos because the first Jericho was completely destroyed 
And there was a curse in Joshua that said anybody who rebuilds the city of Jericho is cursed. They're cursed. Don't rebuild it. Because if you remember in the Old Testament, as the, as the children of Israel were going on the exodus, they were leaving slavery. They needed to be sought, saved, and they were lost. As they were leaving and going on the exodus, the first city that they came up to was Jericho. It was the first city. So as Jesus is going to deliver his people, he's following a similar route that would have been familiar. And as they're going into Jericho, everybody would have been like, Jericho. We know that story, just like if you've grown up in the in church. You know Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. Jericho is a song about it, right? And as they're entering Jericho, as they drew near it, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Now here's, here's the deal. There, there, was, there was the old Jericho that was probably just a village in ruins, but when Herod decided to build a new Jericho, which why the Bible called Herod cursed, because he did that. He, he built another Jericho, and he built it, and it was one of the places that everybody vacationed to. It was like the Naples, Florida of the, of, of, of the Middle East, right? Have you ever been to, Na anybody been to Naples? Okay, you haven't. I, long time ago, I went there when I was like 19, 18 years old. Beautiful palm trees. It's, it's one of the most gorgeous places, high-end, rich, like, oh my goodness. Yachts coming in and out, like it's crazy, and I went there, and I was just amazed at what I saw. I mean, dolphins jumping in the bay. I'll never forget that, watching. I'm like, what is, what is this place? That was Jericho. So it was normal for beggars to line the street on the way to that Jericho, to Herod's Jericho, because rich people would be passing by there. And to feel better about themselves, they would throw them some change. I feel better about myself because I handed that homeless guy a buck. I didn't get to know his story. I don't even know his name. I don't really want to know, but I gave him a dollar. I feel so much better about myself. Is it wrong to give alms? Is it wrong to give offerings like that? No, it's not. But that's why this beggar and that's why these streets were lined is because this is what they knew the rich would do. They'd throw him the scraps. And he says, hearing a crowd passing by, he inquired what this meant. He's asking, hey, I hear this big commotion. What's going on? Jesus the Nazarene is passing by, they told him. So he called out, Jesus, son of David. Now this is loaded. Remember, Jesus' name means Yahweh saves. So he's saying, Yahweh who saves, who is the son of David, the promised Messiah. Like this guy's yelling out faith. He's yelling out, I believe who you are. Have mercy on me. Please have mercy on me. What is this... So he called out. Then those in front told him to keep quiet. But he kept crying out on the board. In other words, he's on the back side because he's gotten pushed to the back. Because he's blind. And people are holding, and they're like, shut up. Just be quiet. He's passing by. We, just leave him alone. And he, he can't get over this. And it says, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. Jesus had to stop the crowd and say, bring that guy to me. And they had to part. You can, you can imagine the scene as they were bringing this blind man. And remember, in these days, anybody born with a disability was thought to have been cursed by God. Never mind the city they're going to has been cursed by God. Even though it's beautiful, even though it's rich, even though it looks great. That city's actually cursed. This blind man isn't cursed. This blind man has faith. 
And it says, Jesus stopped and commanded he be brought to him. When he drew near, he asked him, look at this, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, he said, I want to see. I want to see. Here, here's a man that was probably blind his entire life. Probably born blind. And Jesus looks, and here a blind man walks up, and Jesus asks the question out loud in front of everyone, I wonder what he wants. <laughs> what do you want me to do for you? Uh, uh. See, but that's what God does for us. He asks so that we have to respond and say what we really mean. The question's there to get us to say what's really true. This guy doesn't hold back. He says, I want to see. Now, here's the crazy part. You want to know why I think this guy really wanted to see, and we'll see it in the next couple of sentences here? This guy longed, longed for salvation, longed to get out of the world that was broken that he lived in. He has just cried out and said that you, I believe you are the promised Messiah. I just want to see you. Our people have been waiting their entire existence for this moment. Humanity has been waiting its entire existence to see the Savior. And you're here. I, I just want to see you. I want to see. Everybody else can see you. Everybody else is, is cheering. And I, I just want to see you. Look at what happens. Receive your sight, Jesus told him. Your faith has healed you. And remember, sometimes Jesus feels people heals people and tells them their faith was a part of it. Sometimes he just heals people because he wants to. We see it both ways in scripture. There's not this faith healing. If you have enough faith, you get what you want from God. That's, that is terrible teaching. That is awful teaching to say to God, I can manipulate him by having faith and then I get what I want. Versus saying, no, faith is God, you give me whatever you want. That's true faith. He goes on, instantly he could see and look what he does. And he began to follow him. He surrendered his life to him. Glorifying God. All the people when they saw it gave praise. All the people. You see, this guy when he finally could see the Savior said, that's it, I'm done, I have no life. I'm not going back to my family to say, look, I can see now, I'm not gonna go find a job. I'm giving myself to this man. He's everything. Listen, when you believe that you're a lost person, when you believe that there's no hope but Jesus, when you come to know him, this is your response. You can't get away from it the rest of your life. You can't turn your back. And if you do, there's such a weight on you, it forces you to come back to him. For those people who say, yeah, I tried that Bible thing. I tried that religion thing. It didn't work for me. I don't think you really understood and really understood the Jesus that you trusted if you can just so easily walk away. Either he really is who he says he is and the Bible is true or it should be burned and thrown in the trash. It is not a good moral book, by the way. The Bible is not a good moral book because it ends with, you're done. You can't be moral enough to win with God. That's a very depressing book. It's not good for humanity unless it's true. And then all the people are receiving. He goes on. It says, he entered Jericho and was passing through. There was a man named Zacchaeus. 
He was a wee little man. Anyway, that's the song. He was short. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Of course, he lives in Jericho. It's where all the rich people want to live. <laughs> and the taxes in Jericho are great because it's where the rich people with all the money live. <laughs> like, this guy's got life figured out. I'm a tax collector in Jericho. It's beautiful. He's got the ultimate life you could want at that time in that area of the world. Everyone would have been like, man, I wish I could be like a Zacchaeus, except I hate tax collectors. But, you know, I like the wealth and I like all the stuff. He was trying to see who Jesus was. You know, I've, I've read this story numerous times, and that's the first time I saw that phrase. He was trying to see who he was. In other words, he wasn't just trying to see a show. He was like, I've heard about this Jesus. I wonder if he really is who he says he is. I've heard rumors, and he wants to see him, but he was not able because of the crowd since he was a short man, right? You can't see. And nobody's going to give the tax collector a way through, right? You hate that guy, the IRS agent, right? Like, he knocks at the door. You're like, shut the lights off. Pretend we're not here. They'll figure out a way to get to us, right? It goes on and it says, so running ahead, now you see this little short man, this little short rich man, running ahead and he climbs up a sycamore tree to see Jesus. Remember, in those days they wore robes, skirts. Climbing up a tree was not real easy and then when you're up a tree, you see up. Not necessarily the best idea. He runs up a tree. Jesus came to the place, he looked up. I love this. He comes to the sycamore tree and he looks up like, look, there's a rich short man in a tree. Like, of course you would look up. You see some rich guy climbing a tree in a robe, and you're like, That's, you don't see that every day. He looks up, Zacchaeus, hey, hurry, come down, because today I'm going to stay at your house. I must stay at your house. Can you imagine the shock? Here's Zacchaeus. Nobody really likes him because he's a, I mean, they want to use him. Everybody wants to use Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is kind of like the guy you, you want to ask him or tell him what, what he can do for you. That, that's Zacchaeus. His whole life is spent just making deals with people all the time. Always the middleman, always caught. And Jesus says, hey, I want to come eat at your house. I mean, there are people there, faithful Jews. There are all kinds of people that are probably there. And he picks Zacchaeus? Look at what happens. So he quickly came down and welcomed him joyfully. You see him like coming down the tree, he'd be like, okay, let's go. Little short guy leading him to his house, right? You can see the scene. It's like the hobbits right, in Lord of the Rings and leading everyone. And then it goes and it says, all who saw it, look at this, all, not some, not many. The word is all. All who saw what just happened began to complain and say he's gone to lodge with a sinful man. Does he not know who this Zacchaeus is? Does he not know what kind of sinner he is? What kind? I don't know if this guy could be the Messiah being with sinners. What city are they in at this time right now? Jericho. In the Old Testament, God sent two spies into Jericho. Whose house did they stay at in Jericho? Rahab. You know, the business owner, she's a really nice lady, married with a husband, multiple kids. Oh, no. Rahab the what? Prostitute. That's not a coincidence that Jesus is picking this man, a sinner in Jericho, to, to say, yeah, your heart 
Your heart is so wicked, you don't even see that it was Rahab who saved my people. It was Rahab when the spies came in. She hid the spies in her tent. She hid them so that they could get out and escape. And she said, I believe in your God. I will make your God my God. I surrender to him because I believe he is the God of all gods. And, and the Bible even uses her in the lineage of Jesus. Jesus comes from Rahab's line. That's incredible that God uses terrible people. That should be encouraging to you because you're a terrible person. So am I. And if you think you're great, just take some time to get people's really honest opinion about you. They'll tell you. Now, do we have to stay terrible people? No, God changes us. He changes us to be like him. But then we don't take any credit for it and say, look how great we are. We give all the credit back to him for what he did in us. And that's exactly, so the irony of this is huge. These people want Jesus to come and do for them. He, they, all the righteous people want to say, look, God's going to win for me. And the second he brings in a sinner, it's like, oh, we don't want anything to do with him. And God throughout his story is constantly using broken people. He goes on, he says, but Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, Lord, and I have ex if I've extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Today, salvation has come to this house. That's the same thing Rahab said. It's the same message. It hasn't changed for thousands of years. It's the same God. And he says, today, salvation, Jesus told him, because he too is a son of Abraham, for the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. I love this. Today salvation has come because he too is a son of Abraham. This Gentile, this Zacchaeus is now a part of the family just like Rahab who is not a Jew is now a part of the family. This is incredible, guys. This is thousands of years of God saying, I'm the same God, quit messing with me. Quit saying I've changed. I'm the same today and forever. And Jesus is laying this out. And he says, I've come to seek these kind of people. People that see they need me. People that when they come to know me, their life gets transformed. Zacchaeus is saying, I'm going to give half of my possessions to the poor and, if I, and give four times anything I've, I've taken that I shouldn't. This is going to ruin probably his wealth. He doesn't care. He's been changed. He understands who Jesus is and it's transformed him. Now notice, we just read earlier about a rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, hey, I, I've got something I want you to do for me, Jesus. I want you to help me know that I have eternal life. And Jesus told that rich young man that he needed to go sell everything and give it to the poor and then come and follow him. Notice he doesn't tell Zacchaeus, no, you need to sell everything. Jesus says that's enough. You see, because the rich man's story we read earlier, a couple, last week, week before, his heart was trying to figure out how to keep what he had to earn the credit he thought he deserved. Zacchaeus is saying, I'll give whatever I have to give because none of it's mine. I'm lucky to be alive and I'm lucky to have you in my home and I'm lucky to know that you are the savior of the world. And it transformed the way he lived his life. This would have been terrible for him occupationally. <laughs> other tax collectors I said this last week would have hated Zacchaeus 
Listen, if you want to pay your taxes and there's multiple tax collectors, which tax collector do you want to go to now in the area of Jericho? Zacchaeus. He's going to be honest and you only have to pay what you're supposed to pay. He's not going to make you pay any more like all the other tax. Let's everybody go to Zacchaeus. This is not going to make him popular. He's going to be even more hated by the Romans and by people around him because he's going to live a righteous life and they're not going to like it. But he doesn't care because he's been transformed by the reality of who Jesus is, that he is the son of man. As they were listening to this, he went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear right away. Remember, I've been explaining this for weeks. They're on their way to Jerusalem. They believe God's going to bring his kingdom. He's going to kill all the wicked people. They believe they're righteous, so they're going to get powers of authority. And here we go. Therefore, he said, a noble man traveled to a far country to receive for himself authority to be king and then return. Now, Jesus is referring to himself here. He, went, he left heaven. He came to earth, Right? He's going to die on a cross, which gives him the authority, the justice, because he took it on himself, to be king, and then he's going to return again, a second coming. And then it says, he called 10 of his slaves, gave them 10 minas. A mina's a coin. It's a, it's a, you know, we have different coins and dollar bills, right? You have talents, you have minas, you have drachmas. There's all different kinds of measures in the Bible. No different here. Just like we have ones and 20s and 50s and, you know, nickels and dimes. This is a mina. And he told them, engage in business until I come back. Well, what kind of business? Well, the business the master does. And the master's business is to seek and to save lost people. What we just read. He's telling this parable after just saying, I came to seek and to save the lost. This is my business. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to rule over us. This is exactly what's getting ready to happen to Jesus. All the religious people betray him and they get the crowds to chant crucify him and he's crucified. The noble man is crucified because they don't like that he won't give them what they want. At, the, at his return, having received the authority, remember, to be king. In other words, Jesus is saying when he comes back, Jesus has ascended into heaven. We looked at in Acts He's going to come back someday. He summoned those slaves he had given money to so he could find out how much they had made in business. The first came forward and said, Master, your mina has earned 10 times more. Well done, good slave, he told him, because you've been faithful in a very small matter. Have, have authority over 10 towns. The second came and said, Master, your mina has made five minas. So he said to him, you will be over five towns. I mean, if you think of this, yeah, there's a part of this, it's like, well, that's not fair, right? Look what happens. Another came and said, Master, here's your mina. I have kept it hidden away in a cloth because I was afraid of you. For you're a tough man. You collect what you didn't deposit and reap what you didn't sow. He told him, I will judge you by what you have said. You've said what's true about me, but your response wasn't humility. Your response was to try to do works to keep good with me. You didn't risk it all for me. You didn't lay down your life. You tried to keep it. He told him, if you knew I was a tough man collecting what I didn't deposit and reaping what I didn't sow, why didn't you put my money in the bank? I mean, goodness gracious, at least put it in the bank. I mean, sure, it's like 0.1% in the savings account, but that's better than just giving me the coin back. 
And he looks and he says, and when I returned, I would have collected it with interest. So he said to those standing there, take the amina away from him and give it to the one who has 10. That's a hard verse. I think there are a lot of people who believe that they're Christians who are walking around saying, I know Jesus, but they are, there's nothing in their life that shows that they are about his business. They're about their own business. And this passage is speaking to those people. It is not speaking about lost people here. Necessarily, It's talking about people who should know. It's talking about the, the religious leaders. The reason I know that is because of the next passage. It says, but they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. I love this. They speak up immediately. say, it's not fair that he gets ten more. Why does it five with five only get five? Listen, if you know God, you're content with whatever he gives you. Because you're just happy that you're not dead. And you're happy that you have eternal life. And you just want to serve him. Because he's the master, you're not. You don't get to tell the master, well, I don't have enough. That's not what you say. You might ask the master, is it enough? But you don't get to make demands on him. And these guys are saying, well, that's a bad thing that he gave him 10 more. And he says, I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given. And from the one who does not have, even what he does have will be taken away. Now look at what happens. But bring here these, these enemies of mine who did not want me to rule over them and slaughter them in my presence. When he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. He then says, here's the lost people, the unbelievers. You see, God has this way of, of putting us in a position where he kind of opens up our heart and makes us look inside and we don't like what we see. That's what he just did. He just said, look, there are different kinds of people and there are faithful people. People who are fine to be faithful with, with just five and people who are faithful with 10. And, and then there's those that are hiding. They say they know me, but they live in fear constantly. They're always afraid that if I follow God, I'm gonna lose this, I'm gonna lose that. It's not gonna be enough and I, I gotta protect my interests. I got, they can't just surrender. And he goes, I'm concerned for them, which is why he's telling this parable. Listen, we should be terrified of God. We should be terrified of the living God. There's no one in our book that didn't meet God at any time and wasn't terrified. And at the same moment that we have that terror, we have a God who says, remember Jesus. I've provided a way for you not to be terrified. I've provided a sacrifice so that you don't have to die. He died for you in your place. And when we understand that, our response to that should be such gratitude that we are so about the Father's business of seeking and saving the lost. I want to go out and tell people. I want people to know that this God, he is absolutely wrathful, he is absolutely just, and he's absolutely loving and caring. And Wow, that's a God I can believe in. Not one that's been made up. And he says, when he said, said these things, he went on to Jerusalem. And don't you know that in verse 27, they probably missed the rest of this parable like we do. We can hear a teaching, miss all the stuff, and then we pick out the part we like. Like, but bring these enemies of mine who did not want to rule over and I'll slaughter them. Yeah, now we're going to Jerusalem. We're going to do some slaughtering. That's what, yeah, I don't know what he said about the Mina guys, but I, I'm ready to do some slaughtering. That'd be awesome. Let's go slaughter some Romans. 
He goes on and he says, when he had said these things, he went up ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples and said, go into the village ahead of you. As you enter, you will find a young donkey tied there on which no one has ever sat. Un untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent left and found it just as he told them. As they were untying the young donkey, its owners came and said to them, why are you untying the donkey? Of course. Like if your car sitting out front, somebody gets in, they got a key and they put the key in, they start it up and they wave at you. You're like, what is going on? Like you're taking off in my car, dude. Like that's what the animals were. They were, that, we're pack animals. It's, now no one had ever sat on this donkey either. Probably not the best pick. You're sitting on a wild animal that's never had anyone ride on it. Jesus is going to do like, like bronc riding into Jerusalem. Like I'm going to break this horse. Like what's, this was probably, but th do you want to know why Jesus picked this? He had to. Because in Zechariah 9.9, in Zechariah 9.9, it was prophesied that this is what exactly would happen. Zechariah 9.9 says this, the king will be coming, righteous and victorious. He'll be coming lowly, riding on a donkey. He's not going to be coming with a white horse. And, and No, he's going to be coming lowly, riding on a donkey, on the colt, a young donkey that's never been ridden on, the full of a donkey. These guys have no idea they're fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. Like, they're just traveling along. Jesus is like, go get me a donkey. Okay. And Jesus, all along the way, is fulfilling biblical prophecy with all the decisions he's making. He wants to be sure, are you ready for this, that you and I and that humanity is without excuse, that either this Bible is true from Genesis to Revelation or it's all a joke. There's no in-between. And you gotta make a decision. And you can't just kind of pick the parts you like because then, the, then none of it's true. And he lays it out, and he goes, and he says, go get me a donkey. Okay, well, go get it. And look what happens. The Lord needs it, they said. They brought it to Jesus. So the guy's like, oh, well, if the Lord needs it, you can have it. I love that. The guy's like, sure. And after throwing their robes on the donkey, they helped Jesus get on it. The symbolism is amazing. They're saying, I... I'll take off my robe and throw it on there because you're the ultimate one and, and the clothes I have aren't even mine. And he gets on this donkey and it says, as he was going along, they were spreading their robes on the road. Listen, clothing was not like today. You couldn't go on Amazon and order another robe and be there early shipping. Like, like robes were valuable. You had one you didn't have multiple robes, typically. You had one robe. To take it off and throw it on the ground, your mother would have killed you. And they can't help themselves but to throw their robes and say, I'm, I'm nothing, I'm undressed before you. And it says, now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Look at that. Not for who he is, they're praising God for what he could do and what he had done for them, not praising him for who he is. And we're, if we're honest, not much different. 
I'll lay my robe down if I think I'm going to get another one. But if that's my only robe, God, and you don't give me another one, I'm not sure I can lay that robe down. Because that's good stewardship. No different here. And it says, they said, the king who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Can I just tell you there is another spot where this was said about Jesus? It's getting ready to come up soon. It's Christmas. You know, it's the Feast of Dedication. It's Look, look, Luke 2, 8. In the same region, so Jesus has just been born. So we're going to go back in the story. Jesus has just been born, a little flashback. And there were shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around these shepherds, and they were terrified. There it is. They were terrified. But the angel of the Lord said, don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people today. A Savior who is Messiah, the Lord, was born for you in the city of David. That's Bethlehem. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in cloth and lying in a feeding trough. He goes from a feeding trough to riding the animal that ate out of the trough. That's how humble Jesus was. And then he says, suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to the people he favors. That's the same thing they're saying as he's going into Jerusalem right now. When he was born, this is what was said about him, and then he went into obscurity, and nobody even recognized who he was for 30 years. And he's getting ready to go into Jerusalem, and everybody's singing in his praise, and they're getting ready to crucify him because they don't want to hear what he has to say. Because look what he does. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told the teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, they can't say these things about you unless they're really true. And we don't think they're true. And we haven't said as the spiritual leaders that they are true. So you need to tell them to stop this insanity. They're out of control. Acting like you're the Messiah. You're, you're on a donkey. You know, there's no army behind you. He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. The universe itself will cry out to my glory doesn't matter if you don't want to speak it and it doesn't matter if they don't want to speak it i'm the god of the universe and you can't believe it because you want a god that gives you what you want and puts you on high not a god who asks you to give others what they need and asks you to lay down your life like he did his he goes on and he says as he was approaching and saw the city look at this jesus has this moment where he is at the pinnacle of people bowing, laying their robes. And as he's approaching the city, look at his heart. He wept over it. He just wept. I mean, can you imagine? This is the moment where you should be like smiling and all coming. And now, how weird would it be that he's riding in and he's crying? Like, wait, our, it'd be like the guy that gets elected president is uncontrollably sobbing. You know, it isn't like, and you're like, what? I thought you'd be like, I don't know if I want you to lead me. I'm looking for a strong guy that's going to, you're up there crying. If you knew this day, if you knew this day what would bring peace, and here it is again, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Is it hidden from your eyes? 
Do we have a peace crisis in our world today? Drug manufacturers know we do. And they're making billions, trillions off of it. Drug dealers know we have a peace crisis. And they're making trillions off of it. Our military knows there's a peace crisis. And military spending around the globe is trillions worth. We have an absolute peace crisis and we don't understand that it's the Prince of Peace is the only one that's going to fix it. He's the only place where peace can be found. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build an embankment against you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave one stone on another in you because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus isn't going into Jerusalem saying, I know you're going to crucify me and I can't wait to get you. I'll show you when I come back. I bring fire down from heaven. He's going into Jerusalem weeping because he knows he has to judge them someday and he doesn't want to. But, I, but I'm a judge. I'm a good God. I have to be just and I, I don't want to do this. But you don't understand what you're bringing on yourself. You don't have to bring this on yourself. You can, you can bring me on you. You can take... I can take your punishment for you. But see, if, if I do that, then you're going to live a life that's like this. You're going to weep. You're not going to want to get people. You're going to want to surrender to the glory of God. In 70 AD, this prophecy came true. If you don't believe me, read some Roman history. Not Christian history. Secular Roman history. Secular Roman history, they tore down the temple. And in the midst of tearing down the temple, they set the temple, that's Herod's temple, on fire. When they set it on fire, Herod's temple had gold lining on the inside. He taxed the people and lined it with gold to build them a beautiful temple because he said, well, if I do this for them, if I do what they want me to do for them, then they'll do what I want them to do for them. He made a deal with them. When they set the building on fire, the gold melted down into the stones and into the foundation. The Roman soldiers were given permission to go after the gold. So they literally took every single stone of the temple down and scraped every bit of gold they could find off of it. That's crazy that Jesus knew that was going to happen. And he laid it out and secular history tells us it happened. Because they thought they were good with Herod. They thought things were going to turn out good. Messiah was going to come and save them. It goes on and it says this. Right after, look at this. Right after he is broken and you think he's this weak, like, oh, I just wish they'd listen. I just, I don't know what I'm going to do. I wish you'd listen to me. He went directly into the temple complex and he began to throw out those who were selling and said, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. And every day he was teaching in the temple complex. That means every day he came back into the temple to see who came back. And guess what he did? Do you think if he came back the next day and they were selling again, he was like, well, I tried. Or do you think he threw over some tables again? See, God goes after injustice. God goes after righteousness. His heart breaks over it. But he's a just God. He's a loving God. And he says, my house will be a house of prayer. Instead, you've made it into this thing it was never supposed to be. 
It's just a religious system. It's supposed to be a place where we come together and tell God how great he is. Tell my father, tell me how great we are. But you don't. It says the chief priests and the scribes and the leaders of the people were looking for a way to destroy him. Look at this. But they could not find a way to do it because all the people were captivated by what they heard. See, they're waiting. This, this, this Jesus, this, this Messiah came brokenhearted, wanting people to see how great God was. When he got to the temple, he couldn't help himself but to start throwing over tables. Can you imagine that happening in churches today? There are churches this needs to happen in. There are churches where somebody needs to go in and start throwing over tables. I hope we're never one of those churches. And if you think we are, I would encourage you to come and talk to me. Maybe there's some things we need to turn over. But Jesus did this out of love. It wasn't like he stopped being loving and decided I'm gonna throw over tables. He's like, I, I have to love the people that are coming here to worship my father. And he says, and he says, but they were all captivated by what they heard. Let me ask you, are you captivated by the God of the universe as revealed in his son, Jesus? Does it captivate you daily? Does it hold you captive? Like, like it is the defining thing of your life that, that, that everything else is structured around, including how you do money and worship. Is, does he captivate you? Because here's the deal. If you say, oh, yeah, yeah, he captivates me, Jesus is getting ready to give them a really hard teaching where he tells them you're going to have to drink my blood and eat my flesh, and they all leave. See, God's going to ask us to do some hard things because he wants us to do some things for others that are uncomfortable. Sometimes in justice, sometimes in love and mercy. And it's hard to do those things. And he looks and he says, what do you want me to do for you? And our response to a God that really is who he says he is should be to look at him and say, I surrender. What do you want me to do? I'm just, I'm going to do it out of gratitude. I'm thankful. I'm not looking to get anything. I'm not looking to get in good with you because I already know I'm in good with you. I, that you love me, that you care for me. And I just want other people to know how great you are. And I got to survive in this life, so just tell me, tell me. I surrender. That's the picture of the Bible, the entire story. And the other picture is people running around saying, I want God to do this, and God, you do this, and do this, and do. And that's a foundation that's going to get torn down. So let me ask you, what do you want the Son of Man to do for you? Maybe another way to ask it. What do you think the Son of Man is asking for you to do for him?